Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Carly Ennis, that man bun is getting ever more lustrous. It's good to see you. You too. Welcome to the Critishet. How are you? Hi, how are you? It's lovely to meet you. How are you getting on? Now, as you can hear, Collie and I took a trip outside the shed to visit one of the largest walled parks in Europe. It's a truly beautiful place right in the heart of Dublin City. And we came here to meet a friend of his, Laura Griffin. Can I give you a hand carrying anything? She's going to tell us pretty much all there is to know about a particular species of animal that was introduced here around 350 years ago when the park was first established. We got a nice day for it. We really did. Really lucky. This is actually the ideal for the last couple of weekends when it's been like 33 degrees. Okay, so I'm Laura Griffin. I'm a PhD student with the Lab of Wildlife Ecology and Behaviour in UCD. I'm supervised by Simone Tucci. So my project focuses on the fallow deer in Phoenix Park and the way that humans interacting with them is affecting their welfare and physiology. We're also looking at how best to manage that. And at the moment, we're out here in lovely, wet Phoenix Park to come check out the deer. Of course, I, I would just say shoot the humans, but I better not put that on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Any environmental like... terrorism, Colette's going to be blamed straight away. <laughs> and I'll shop her. I'll go straight to the police. I'll be like, yeah, I know who was. I have the dirt. Wanted posters already printed. <laughs> away, yeah. So where are we going first, Laura? So first of all, we're going to go out into the 15 acres. So when we go out into the middle of that, hopefully we'll be able to see the vast majority of the female herd in the park. So the deer are sexually segregated in the park. Um, it's Sexually segregated? Yeah, Should I be up in arms about this? Yeah. <laughs> There's all the bachelors are down on the eastern side of the park. So while they'd want to murder each other when the rut comes around, they're best friends the rest of the year. They form their nice big boy bands together. Um, so now we're on the western side of the park towards Castle Knock, and this is the females' home ground. So this is where all the ladies are in charge. There's some deer. Oh, well spotted. It's very um, yeah. beige-coloured at the moment. With the the grasses are yeah. really high. The seeds are out. It's very beige-coloured, and it's very hard to see the deer right now. So well done, Collie. Is that a stag with his group of females, or what you're seeing here is a little subset? So that male who's standing there, he's actually not a fully mature male just yet. Okay. Yeah. So he's not top. Top he's man. not the top dog. If right. anything, he's probably the bottom. So at this time of the year, you would expect um, all the males to be together down the far end of the right. park. Now, we do have a few males that we kind of playfully call the daddy's boys um, who move over very early. And then a few call the mommy's boys that stay here. <gasps> yeah. 
So there's so he's got the apron string still. He does. He's oh holding God, on. Yeah. Now there's a few reasons that they might be doing that, but what you can see is, do you see how his antlers? Mm-hmm. They've got a little bit of branching, but they're actually quite skinny. So fallow deer, the way that you identify them is at the top of their antler, they've got this broad, flat bit. We call it palmation because it looks like the palm of your hand. So when they reach their full maturity around, so they're considered full bucks by four years old, and they tend to be like in their finest by around seven years old. You'll have their antlers go parallel to the ground and then straight up with that big, broad palmation at the top. Cool. So when they're two and three years old, like that guy's probably about two. Um, While they've got a little bit of branching, they don't have that palmation and their antlers tend to go up rather than going parallel with the ground. The guys who are one year old, there's actually one in the back there. Um, They're called prickets and they just have two little spikes. You can see he's just stuck his head up there. He's in the back behind the female. So he would have been one of last year's offspring who hasn't quite gotten the message to leave just yet. So he's the spotty teenager of of, of the deer world. Amazing. So these are fallow deer species. And um, how many of them are, are there in the park, do we know? Yeah, so these guys are fallow deer and there's roughly 600 in the park. So we have about 80-85% of them tagged, so we can actually track them over the course of their entire lives. Right. You'll always miss those few, um, unfortunately. But yeah, so we're able to track about 500-550 of them. Wow. These guys, the fallow deer, they're one of Ireland's species, and they all follow pretty much the same life cycle. So the females and the males, the females' entire lives are based around fawns, and the, fem- the males' entire life cycle is based around the rut, so their mating season, which is in October. So we can start with the males. The males, uh, they tend to live fast and die young compared to the females. Okay. They, they burn themselves out fairly quickly. Their rushing season is in October, and for the first like six months of the year, they're entirely aimed at that period. So in March, they'll shed their antlers and they start their new growth. Antlers are different to horns. Horns grow continuously over the course of life, but antlers, they'll fall off every year and regrow. And you can tell the age of an individual from how they form that year. They'll shed them in March and begin growing them by May. So during the summer period, they're focusing on getting all the nutrition that they can to build up their body size, to try and invest in that antler growth. And it can grow at insane rates. I read somewhere like they had tracked a population of fallow deer and their antlers were growing like between a quarter to a third of an inch every 48 hours. No. Like they could practically see them oh growing. Oh my God. What, what are the antlers actually made of? Um, they're made of bone. Yeah. So wow. they, they'll have a nice thick velvet layer on them, which is the thick layer of skin. It's kind of fuzzy looking, hence the name velvet. So that's got a huge amount of vasculature in it and it feeds oxygen and nutrients into that bone and they'll grow it. Um, from the base then usually by the time it gets to around the end of August they are fully formed and they're ready to go Um, the base which is the pedicle will then kind of come out in this coronet and that cuts off the blood supply so then the skin dies and that's when you start to see them looking really metal because they'll rub their antlers off of trees to get rid of that dead skin and it'll hang down like curtains yeah yeah. it looks like they've actually going out and mauling someone they're crazy looking (laughs) brilliant yeah put that on the (laughs) on the album cover (laughs) exactly there's a missed opportunity here oh well i might i might do something about that sometime all i have to do is learn guitar but whenever you can I'll learn the bass. We'll have the band <laughs> ready brilliant. before you know it. But uh, yeah, they'll keep gaining weight then up until October. So around September, you'll start to see the males scrapping with each other. They're starting to suss out how the dominance hierarchy is working, who's in charge. And then by the time it comes into October, they've kind of settled into who the big boys are. 
So the fights are really exciting to see. They actually escalate in the way that they form their dominance hierarchies against each other. So the first thing you have is your roar. The males during October, their necks are considerably thicker than any other time of the year. And your roar is deepest depending on how thick your neck is. So from your opponent roaring, you're able to estimate what his body size is and whether you could actually take him in a fight. Holy yeah. Moly. So some of them come out and they start shouting, and you see all the other males just move away very <laughs> quickly. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Yeah. <laughs> um, they then will start to square up to each other. So we call that parallel walking. So they will walk alongside each other. They'll sometimes face each other and twist their head to show off their favorite an- antler, because they're kind of like humans. They tend to have a preferred side, one that they invest in a little bit more heavily, usually the right side, and it's just a bit bigger. It looks more impressive. If then they still can't tell which one of them is bigger, only then will you escalate to a full fight. And that's because fights are extremely risky for males. No, even if you are bigger than your opponent, you still could get injured. There's also third party intervention, which is very sneaky, where another buck will come in from the side and take down a male from the side while he's distracted by a fight. Wow. Uh, yeah, very sneaky. Um, so then that's the rut. So they'll try and fight off other males and collect a little group of females that they can defend. So fallow deer are what we call a lecking species. A lecking species means that in more open environments than Phoenix Park, say for example the Alps, you would have an area known as a lecking area that the males and females all go to at mating season time. Makes sense. Yeah. Wouldn't make much logical reason to go walking through the Alps hoping to God you find a mate. So usually the males will have fought and have sorted out who owns what area when the females come in. And then there is some female mate selection. She'll walk in and she'll be able to tell who the dominant bucks were based off of who's got the nice patches. The really like the, the spot everybody wants. Um, so here in the park, they actually don't lack. Um, Just because the area is a bit smaller, the males know exactly where the females are, so they'll come looking for them. So you'll see them over here on the Castle Knock side during the mating season. They'll come over, they'll try and form little guardian groups around females, actually out in this area where the grass is quite high, and they'll defend their groups of females, chase off other males. That's actually when we see a huge amount of issue with human disturbance, because a male will invest so much effort in trying to guard this group of females and then humans come in they get very close trying to get photos and they can shy the females away and now he's after investing so much energy in trying to fight off all his competitors for these females and he might not even get a single mating opportunity so he's burnt himself out without the payoff so by the time it hits november the females they're no longer fertile they've gone out of estrus and the males are completely worn down they'll also have lost a huge amount of their body weight they can lose between like 40 to 60 percent of their body weight depending how they were going in and they don't graze while they're defending females it is all about the girls they will just walk back and forth roaring Mm -hmm. to make sure no one comes near them so then they go into the winter and uh, focus on just recovery healing injuries, making it through, and then it all starts again in March. Whereas the females, their cycle is a little bit different. They come into estrus around mid-October. They're covered. They might go into a second estrus if they're not covered. So sometimes you'll see a few 
loner males who hang behind hoping to sometimes they call them sweeper stags covered means mated doesn't mated it? yeah exactly so they'll be covered they'll be mated with successfully and they'll then be pregnant um, some of them won't be so after a couple of weeks they'll go back into estrus so go back into ovulating and you'll see uh, sweeper males who stay behind and try and catch all the, no the sloppy seconds I guess <laughs> <laughs> what a brilliant scientific terminology <laughs> yeah oh my god I've seen a few around around Dublin at late at night doing the same thing but yeah that's mad that's brilliant we're not that different no, really. We're not really not at all there you go but that's yeah. mad that's that's incredible and then what happens then they, they they stick in a group while they're pregnant and yeah so the females will all band together and then by the time you hit June they're coming to the end of their gestation but that's where they start to get a bit different so I know you guys have talked a lot about maternal investment in different species and mm. it's not always what people would expect just because we're so used to seeing what we do ourselves so the fallow deer they hide their babies when they have them which is very different to what people would expect to see you're accustomed to seeing things like you know bovine species like cattle or wildebeest they'll keep their offspring close to them where they can defend them buffalo can fight off a predator if it approaches the deer the female the female fallow deer they don't have antlers they don't really have many defensive weaponry other than kicking and running so what they'll do is they'll go off on their own when they feel like their time has come and they'll leave the herd and isolate themselves and they'll go to a like a very overgrown area it could be high grass could be nettles and they'll give birth on their own and um, once they've had their fawn they will bond with it groom it clean it down and they'll suckle it and nurse it so then they've established the baseline of the bond she'll then leave it hidden and she'll go back to the herd she leaves the baby behind in the grass and the reason for that is because they are like gangly newborn foals they couldn't keep up with the herd and if they were going to be attacked by a predator they'd be the first to go so sometimes when you're watching tv shows have you ever seen a like an impala just drop and lie really still when a mm. cheetah comes into the frame it's the same with the fallow deer so their instinct is to lie really still and hopefully my camouflage works and a sight predator won't see me so sometimes people, I know there's a few issues this year um, that were up on Twitter. Mm. Sometimes people will find fawns on their own in long grass and assume it's been abandoned and they'll pick it up or they'll touch it or they'll move it or bring it to a rescue. And that actually isn't the case at all. Um, the mother has likely hidden that fawn there and is going to come back in a couple of hours. She's just not spending a huge amount of time with it so that she doesn't draw predators to it. Um, even just by touching it if you get your scent on it it can be rejected by the mother when she comes back later yeah. and if you've removed it all together you've now put the mother through the stress of coming back and not finding her baby and having to look for it and the fawn's survival ch chances are reduced as well so I guess it's very important for people to know that mm. just because a fawn's on its own doesn't mean that it's in any trouble whatsoever and really just, just leave them give them plenty of space yeah, that's, that's really incredible how long does it take then for the the offspring to be large enough or grown up enough to go back to the herd? So on average it takes about two weeks before they're big enough to go out and join. You will have the few occasional ones who for whatever reason keep their babies hidden a little bit longer and um, whether that's that they need to mature physically a bit more or whether the mother's just too nervous to bring them out into the open um, but usually two weeks is the average before they start to come out and join the herd. By the time you get to like early to mid-July you'll start to see a good few babies hopping about out there as well that's crazy and um, 
they don't have predators in here or would you have any predation of the young in here they don't have any like large predators we do see some very low levels of predation by foxes okay um particular yeah yeah i was thinking that yeah that's exactly it it's usually in the very early stages like say the first 24 hours where you'd see that happen um after that they do like they mature quite fast and they can start to outrun foxes and stuff by then um it'd be quite small when they're born i'm assuming like what weight would you say around so it really depends like the males tend to be a bit heavier than the females for example but they'll be a couple of kilos that's Mm. nothing yeah Mm. it's really not that much that's a a turkey (laughs) 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 they're all leg their body itself is actually not very large they're gangly for a fox to take on yeah not at all well that's good though in a way because it probably keeps it as, as natural you know as possible even though they're in the middle of a man-made park yeah. a walled park so yeah you're exactly right foxes gotta eat too you yeah. know they are also have cubs that time of the year and that's just mm. part of the natural cycle of life as we keep saying on this podcast we can't be taking sides on when it comes to nature you know everyone no. has to eat yeah. yeah exactly except when it comes to herons we, we don't <laughs> want to talk about herons but there you go stay out my pond you bastards <laughs> Yeah. We go, are we going to go over and... Look and keep going, yeah. yeah let's have a look. Stuff. I'm loving this. <laughs> I hope so, Now we're in August, so the babies are roughly how old and what would they be doing right about now? So around now you'd expect the babies to be between six to eight weeks old. Um, You'll always have a few down either end, so you might have some that are coming out that are only a month old now, just because they were towards the end of the season. So now's the time where they're coming out, they're socialising with each other, they're playing, they're interacting with the other members of the herd, and they're kind of finding their feet. What's the gestation period? Um, from mid-October to mid-June. We'll head up that way. Yeah. That looks like a, a fairy tree there, isn't it? A lone <laughs> hawthorn. Yeah, There's a few of those. There's some up there as well. They're really gorgeous. People actually do put rags and stuff on them. It's really nice. People still use them as sort of bit of nature worship no harm yeah, no harm at all to be encouraged if anything yeah now there's some responsible photographers having a look at the uh the, the herd there and that's what you kind of want to encourage isn't it they're long distance so they're quite away and they have long lenses exactly like you'll see some people getting very close um with very large lenses and it's kind of like well if you're going to spend that much money for a lens might as well keep a safe distance mm-hmm. So the OPW encourage an absolute minimum distance of 50 metres. So if you keep 50 metres away from them, you're not disturbing their natural behaviour in any way. As soon as you start to get within that distance, they start to become more vigilant of you. It disrupts the natural cycle of behaviours that they should be going through because there's very set time points in the day where they should be lying, they should be grazing, they should be ruminating. So ruminating is because these guys have a four-chambered stomach like cattle, they're ruminants. So they have to sit and allow themselves a chance to effectively digest what they're eating. And they've got really cool bacteria in that 
chamber in their stomach that they need to sit and allow it to help them break down the grass that they're eating. So when people start to get too close, you'll see them force them to stand up, move away, become vigilant. It's disrupting all of that natural extraction. The, the OPW is the Office of Public Works and they're the government organisation that manages places like this. So in fairness, I've never seen anywhere that I remember, and maybe I missed them, but I've never seen signs anywhere telling people to maintain that distance. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, we try to have uh, effective signage out. So there's a few things that we've been working on to try and use as management tools. So we have different signage out around the main walkways coming into the park. We're trying to release more social media ad campaigns to let people know about these boundaries and also about the effects that approaching the deer and also the unfortunate common activity that people are engaging in trying to feed them. Right. Yeah, this trying proverbial elephant in the phoenix park that's not in the zoo but yeah <laughs> the elephant in the room though i suppose is a really really important message that we like part, the part of the reason we approached you and we're so glad you came on to talk about it is, is is because you know it is such a major issue isn't it and it really does mess up the the the, the deer physically and and socially and all those things that you know you don't want to be doing to nature so if you could explain what's what's going on there and what people really shouldn't be doing and what we should be what way we should be acting around them you know so people feeding wildlife has gained huge popularity in recent years and i'd say no little part of that is down to social media Mm -hmm. it's you know, nary a week where you see some video go viral of someone having extremely close contact with wildlife. And you can understand people having that drive. Like, it's incredible for your mental health to get close to wildlife. People love the animals. They want to be close to them. They want to share those photos. And often when it comes to feeding, people believe that it's benign or even positive for the animals to get this additional food or a treat or something like that. Um, There's also been some miscommunication, I guess, because feeding has been used in a lot of ecotourism. The double-edged sword that Mm. is ecotourism. Sometimes groups will use provisioning, which is the tourist group providing food to ensure that people get a viewing opportunity, that they can lure animals to a certain area. And while that makes sense, because then the money that those tourists are paying to be there goes back into the conservation, you also have to think about, well, what effect are we having with Mm. the wildlife? So with all of this going on in the background, in recent years, we've seen an explosion, really, in the amount of visitors coming to the park to specifically feed the deer. Um, I'd say it's only really happened in the last 10 years. Like I've talked to some people who worked out here in the 90s and they said you couldn't even get close to the the deer like if you could see them from within 50 meters you were getting lucky before they ran away and a lot of people have misconstrued that as the deer are in some way domesticated or tamed and that's not the case at all what's actually happened is a process called habituation which is very different thing so the deer are wild they're not like a domesticated animal domestication means that you have selectively bred the, for want of a better word, word, friendliest individuals over time to get to the stage where we have with dogs, for example. But that hasn't happened with the fallow deer. What's happened instead is over the years, they've come to the realization, I guess, that it's not worth expending the energy running away from someone if they're not a physical threat to me doesn't mean that they like being close to us we're still a predator we have forward-facing eyes we move very rapidly they're not comfortable with our proximity 
but they've realized that it's not worth their while to move away from us, that they're actually going to do themselves harm because they're going to waste energy they could spend on putting on weight, for example. And with that, people will always see, okay, I can get this close. I wonder if I can take it that step closer. I wonder if I can feed them. Can I, can I have them right up beside me? I've even seen some people put food in their mouth and lean down to see if the animal will take it from their mouth. Never mind the fact that they are a wild animal, so it's not like they're wormed or anything. So that's not advisable to do. Um, but yeah, so one thing that we're really curious about is seeing how this activity is affecting their physiology and their behavior. And there is a huge amount of negative impacts from those activities that well-meaning people don't realize that they're having. I've seen in advertised in holiday brochures actually advertise go feed the deer. So unsuspecting tourists arrive thinking it's a thing and thinking they're doing okay. And then you see people arriving with bags of carrots that they've bought on the way, which you would think is fine for them, but I'm guessing it's not, right? Yeah, no, unfortunately not. So when you see people bring like carrots and apples, you know that they're coming with the best intentions at heart. Um, But you have to sit back and think about it. Fallow deer, 90% of their diet is actually made up of grass. They're a predominantly grazing species. And that other 10% is just made up of what's available year to year. So fresh shoots, nuts and berries, things that they'd forage naturally and browse for naturally. If you're in the wild, very rarely are you going to be able to pull up fields and fields of carrots as a deer. That is a human food. And because of the association with Christmas and Rudolph, people think that's part of their natural diet when it isn't. And especially not in the quantities in which they're getting it. It's very easy to come in and be like, oh, well, it's just me. It's just one carrot. It's just this deer. But you have to think of the knock-on effect of everyone who's seen you doing that and is now going to do it. And while you think you might be behaving responsibly, there's also the stress on the animal in being in that interaction. So deer, one of the common questions we get is, well, if feeding them is bad for them, why are they coming up to me? And that's a fair enough question. Deer have evolved to associate sweetness with high levels of nutrition. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with a lot of grazing species because the most nutritious food is the fresh shoots that come out the start spring and they're very sweet but nature didn't account for white bread and biscuits and chocolate and you know carrots and apples no way (laughs) no not at all good for us Mm. no and it's the same with the carrots and the apples they're very sugary they're very sweet in comparison to grass but it's kind of like having a child that lives in a world that's made of broccoli and a stranger offers them a box of Krispy Kreme. Mm. You know what the toddler is going to do. They're going to go for the sweet thing, even though it's not what's good for them. Mm. And even though that interaction itself might be quite stressful. Like when we see them approach people, we see a huge amount of competition. They shoulder Mm. each other. um, They put each other at risk of injury, especially, for example, during the summer when they shouldn't be doing that. The females should be focusing on nursing their fawns and the males should be focusing on getting their weight back up. They shouldn't be competing with each other. We also see when they're that close to people that they regularly shy. So shying is when an animal takes rapid steps away from you. Yeah. 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 And it's a sign of distress. Yeah. So you'll see them doing that and people who aren't accustomed to interacting with animals or viewing deer won't realize that that's actually a stress behavior, Mm -hmm. that they're moving so quickly away. And then not only are they getting food that they can't efficiently extract the nutrition from it, but now they're actually burning extra energy on top of it from that stress and from shying away from people and then 
in the mix of all of that, I know we're, we're all nature lovers here, but you also have to think of the human sides, which is if a deer is going to be very unpredictable, and I'm here with my child. Yeah. There's a huge risk for injury mm. there for especially, the participant. Yeah, especially antlers and pro- mm. into the equation. Yeah, yeah. you're exactly and what's right. The, what's, what have you found now physically, the effects on the deer? Is there, is there weight issues? Is there issues with them surviving longer in life? Um, what, what, what have you noticed? So we've got a few studies going at the moment. So one group that we're working with out of UCD is uh, Gavin Stewart's lab, and in particular Deirdre McLaughlin. And they've been looking at the rumen structure, so the inside of the rumen of the deer within the park. One thing that's important to realise and that we didn't expect coming in is that not all the deer will actually accept food and not all of them will interact. So that was the first thing that took us by surprise when we came out and began this project. Part of us kind of assumed it would be, you know, a random process. People would just feed what deer they saw opportunistically. But I guess we didn't consider the fact that there's natural behavior, behavioral variation out there. Mm. So if we want to look at it from a, a more dry scientific perspective, uh, for want of a better word, when you look at animals, you've got the very bold and the very shy. And then you have that spectrum that falls in between. And we've seen that manifest in the deer in the park. You've got those individuals who will tolerate coming up to a person and getting food off of them and will deal with that proximity and then you have some that will not cope with it at all as they're being approached they will back away they'll stand up and move away if something's thrown randomly off into the distance they might go to investigate it but they don't want to be close to people that straight away starts dinging alarm bells in your head as an ecologist because that means that you now in one population have two subsets with very very different diets Mm. and straight away you have to think is one at a disadvantage to the other as a result of this so the first thing that i kind of want to talk about is deirdre and gavin's work so they started looking at the rumens in that four-chambered stomach the large section where they sit and they digest and that grass just kind of sits and churns with all those bacteria that's called the rumen so the rumen breaks down a very simple food like grass breaking down the cellulose and then they have these little finger-like projections within it it almost looks like a shag carpet and those are called papillae so those help to absorb the nutrition they're kind of they expand the surface area so they can absorb more or less so since we now know from years of collecting information on these deer who the ones that interact with people are and who the ones that don't interact with people are we were able to compare them to see whether human feeding the deer in the park is influencing the shape of the rumen and the inside of the rumen after they die you get the bodies and you have a look inside them Exactly, yeah. what did you find? (laughs) We found that there is a higher density of papillae in the individuals that are interacting with humans than the ones that are on a natural diet. So this is a very unnatural effect we're having on their gastrointestinal tract. And what that can be a sign of is that they're getting an imbalance of nutrition and there could be higher levels of acid in the stomach that the room is trying to compensate and deal with. So that's just one physiological effect that we're having that you wouldn't be able to tell from the inside, but it's happening inside. Wow. 
So we're actually changing human interaction with these animals. We're actually changing their physiology. That's mad. We are indeed. And it goes deeper than that. One of my colleagues in my lab, Ellen O'Hagan, she's been looking at the antlers in the males over in the male area of the park that I was talking about earlier. So the males, they will all gather together down on the eastern side of the park. And while they're out there, they'll be eating as much grass as they can, ruminating for as long as they can on focusing on building up those nice big antlers in preparation for the rut. But that side of the park also has huge amounts of footfall because it's so close to the city. So they do get fed quite regularly by visitors. So we, using photogrammetry, which is a really cool non-invasive way of measuring a deer's antlers. So you take a photo from a distance and then based on how far away you are and how many pixels are in the photo, you can get the exact length and width of the antlers. Brilliant. So it's a really cool way of getting to collect that kind of data without yeah. having to get too close to them. So we took that information and she compared the antler sizes of the ones that are getting food off of people with the ones that aren't. And she's found that the ones that are getting food off of people have significantly smaller antlers than the ones that are feeding off their natural diet grazing. Wow. And how do you interpret that? Problematic, to say the least. <laughs> that puts them at a huge disadvantage going into the rush. They won't be as competitive in fights and you could potentially be like decreasing their chances of getting mating opportunities because of that so wow. it's a huge problem and there could be yeah there could be a variety of reasons that that's happening first and foremost they're likely not able to digest the food that they're getting properly mm-hmm. um, because it's not part of their natural diet secondly that competition where they're shoveling shoving up against each other they're wasting any energy they can get from it and then third of all if people are constantly disturbing them or like they're running over to people looking for food, if people are shaking bags, they're not sitting and digesting the way that they should be. So it all just kind of adds up into a, a bad picture, really. Wow. Oh, God. And, and, and how do we tackle this issue? I mean, it seems with social media and everybody wants their Instagram photograph ironically the fitness people seem to love their instagram photographs and i've seen people who would wouldn't touch a hamburger or go to mcdonald's or burger king um i've seen their social media posts of them feeding deer and that seems very ironic to me because that's essentially what they're doing to this animal who doesn't know any better so what what do we do what what should we we should be telling people to stop doing this altogether practically that's the best thing to do That is the best thing to do. At the end of the day, what we're doing is unnatural and it's having a negative impact on them. So we should be avoiding feeding them altogether. And we should be keeping our distance of 50 meters, allowing them to behave naturally. Just let the deer be deer. Mm -hmm. They don't need this. They don't need us to interact with them. At the end of the day, we're doing it for us, not for them. And if we love them enough to go the whole way down to the park with a bag of carrots because we think we're giving them a treat, shouldn't that love mean that we can have a long distance relationship because it's better Mm. for them shouldn't we be able to keep that 50 meters so really it comes down to just not doing it and also spreading the message telling other people not to do it because people don't realize Mm -hmm. a lot of people think that they're doing a nice thing and even when you're out in the park if i am into working and i see someone feeding the deer i'll go up and say hey you know that's actually prohibited that's against the rules and here's why mm-hmm. and like nine times out of ten people are shocked and they back away straight mm-hmm. away they they haven't realized so it's really important for us to protect these deer you yeah. know they're part yeah. of dublin's heritage and at the end of the day it comes down to spreading the word and letting people know i find as well that it's I, I, the most 
groups of people that I see doing this are people who have come to Ireland as, as a visitor. And they are fed, pun intended, this information that it's okay to do it. And I think, I wonder if we need to be spreading our, our message even further and going to people who, who run, you know, tourist campaigns and say, hey, come and see the deer, but stand away. You know, don't have this information in your brochure telling people that it's great to feed them, but instead go up and watch them, but from 50 metres different. Like it's... Yeah. Because people don't know. I people don't, wouldn't do this if they knew it was harmful. They just wouldn't, I don't think. Years ago, they had it on the people who rented out the bikes and you could buy carrots at the, at the bike stand. Oh. That was a, a thing for a while. Now it stopped yeah. after they were... Again, they educated. probably didn't know they didn't any better. Know. They yeah. didn't know. It wasn't yeah. a, a malicious thing. Yeah. And I don't think it is a ma- malicious no. thing in most cases. But... As well as tourists, there are people who just want to get their yeah. their, 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 their Instagram sure. photograph. And I think as important as it is as spreading the word and educating people, call people out on it too. Yeah. Seriously, do it for your Uncle Collie. Call people out and say, you know, this is wrong and it shouldn't be done. Yeah. You know, and I think if everybody gets maybe a little bit embarrassed about doing something wrong, it can also help as well as yeah. education. Because some people are just going to do wrong things no matter what especially if they want to get their own yeah. way and I, I think I think we should call people out on this behaviour because you know you've been on national television you've been in the national papers at this stage we're, we're, we're going to put this podcast out so I think yeah, yeah we sh- there should be enough people knowing what's going on now yeah. to stop that kind of behaviour and to, to, to lead the animals in peace the other thing that happens that uh, actually gives me palpitations is around Christmas time when people bring their kids down to see the reindeer, in quotes, which are not reindeer at all. <laughs> but I was down here last Christmas and um, there were tons of people out with their kids. It was Christmas Eve. And there was a huge herd, a huge number of, of animals together and they were racing up and down and up and down. And I don't know how many hours they'd been doing that for. You could see the terror in them and also the energy that they would have been using up. I actually I actually rang the OPW and trying to get people up to see if there's anything they can do. Not that I know if there is anything they can do, but there were so many people coming down trying to get really close. The animals were freaked. They were just running for their lives and it was very, very hard to watch. But it must be heartbreaking for you as well. Because like, I, mean, I, I know, look, I, I study frogs and I get heartbroken about stuff like that. So I mean, like it must be head melt for you (laughs) it is it can be difficult at times like you're you're coming out and you're looking at them and there will always be those individuals who whether it's because they're beginning to feel frightened because the deer are shoving up against them to try and get the food off of them as quickly as they can you can see people get physical with them um tease them holding the food out of reach trying to get that photo smack them away from them shout at them Um, very irresponsible behaviours even like bringing dogs in very close proximity with them or there's huge issues sometimes with you know like it's fine to utilise the park as much as you possibly can as a walking space if you have a dog but if you don't have recall your dog shouldn't be off the lead Mm, and there are issues with dogs off the lead chasing the herd going through and driving them at a great distance and people coming down with their kids and allowing their kids to chase them or you know when we're looking through the world through the lens of a phone sometimes you don't realize that the deer have been walking away from you for 200 meters while you've been falling after that holding your camera up mm. and you're just going to end up with 100 mm. photos of their arses anyway like yeah. it's really not yeah, worth you it you probably won't use yeah. <laughs> can i can i check i i have lots of bugbears of another bugbear to yeah. get off my chest drones what impact will drones have on the herd 
drones are not allowed in the park. They shouldn't be flown in here. And we have seen people fly the drones and the deer aren't accustomed to the sound. Mm. So when they fly them down low over the herd to try and get a video, the herd just ends up scattering. It's flying away to them. I'm sure it sounds like an entire hive of hornets is coming for them. Yeah, they, yeah. they can't interpret what it is and it is very stressful for them. So yeah, drones should be kept mm. at a distance from the deer or not used in the park at all mm. because they shouldn't be used in here. I've seen the, the, the OPW lads. It must be a head melt mm. for them as well. But I have seen them a couple of times. It was on the, the documentary they made of, of the park and they've been after people with drones and mm. you know people flying kites next to the deer and, and, and trying to do snowboarding with kites and it's just I don't know it's just I think for me what uh what we have as humans is this attitude that we we own everything and we we forget that actually we're just we're neighbors with everyone and everyone needs to like we wouldn't do this for our neighbors our human neighbors we wouldn't be flying drones into their bedrooms (laughs) or you know feeding their force feeding their kids chocolates or something so I think if I'm always thinking about how to change people's attitudes and, and get them to flip their thinking. And I think with kids, probably to to show kids that, you know, we, we share the world, we share the park, we share the field, we share the little back garden with other non-humans that yeah. might be away. Because I, I really feel the more disconnected we get from nature, the more we forget that we actually don't own everything, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and I, I think, agree. I, I think your point that you made earlier as well, because I suppose people do think... Sure, it's only me. I'm only giving this one carrot. But if 40 people that day, and that's probably a low number during the, the summer months, if 40 people were to think the same thing and do that for 10 minutes a day, that's a lot of time. And they're probably spending a lot more than 10 minutes. Of, you know, so yeah, it really does. Each each person's individual actions do make a, a, an impact. And, and the deer at the end of the day, like what you were saying there, Colette, I did have someone once when I approached them and said, oh, did you know that that's actually not allowed? He was shocked and he did say, but why else would you have put them here? And I was mm. like, sorry, what? And he was like, you know, why else would the deer be here if not for my entertainment? Mm. He And I was like, well... These guys have actually been here since the 1660s. They haven't specifically been put here as a tourist activity for people no. to play around with. It's it's not a petting zoo. They are wild animals and they should be left be. And when it comes to Christmas time, I can understand that you want to bring your kid down to see the deer. It's a very exciting time of year. But Rudolph is in training. He's <laughs> yeah. going to get enough at Christmas time. It's better if you just lie down and look at them from a distance and see who might get picked for the sleigh. I have a question for you. Oh, hey. What's your favorite fun fact about uh, the deer in the park? Oh my god. Oh, that's a tough one. Or your best day with them? My best day with them. It's actually uh, kind of funny. I think my best day with them was the first time that I saw one give birth. Oh, yeah, wow. I was 
very lucky that day it was an extremely quiet day there was no one really around and it just shows the kind of things you can see if you keep that distance and I was observing a female herd and I saw one female separate herself off and uh, give birth at the edge of the acres and I saw her groom her fawn her fawn take its first steps (laughs) and I think that had to be one of the most spectacular days for me that I've had out here it was just breathtaking well, there's an advertisement for keeping your distance and, and observing nature. That would be magic, I'd say. Oh. I might actually do that myself. I might have a, have a sneak around here when I'm looking for frogs up here. I keep an eye on the deer at the same time. Um, yeah, that's don't follow them if they go no. off on their own. <laughs> I know Take now. I know Take all the rules. <laughs> don't feed them after midnight. <laughs> don't let them get wet. They'd be screwed in Ireland if they weren't supposed to get wet. <laughs> yeah, some of the fawns. Uh, because it's been so sunny this June and July... We were uh, out last weekend um, and they were all like, you know, out skipping. It was hot. It was lovely and sunny. And then I was out collecting with them on Friday and they looked shell-shocked. They were like, why is it so wet? They like kept shaking themselves and standing up and shaking their heads. They were so like, what is this? I haven't seen any of this my whole life. That was just amazing. Thank yeah, you so much thank for you so much. thank you so much for having me, and I'd be happy to come out anytime. Oh, Maybe we yeah. can come out during the rush, and you guys yeah. can see them out definitely, in their stands. Definitely going to come back with you because it's just amazing. And I'm noticing them everywhere. They're just like yeah. It's yeah. it's such a privilege we have in Dublin to be able to just wander off to this park and and, yeah. and chill out. And I suppose there's a few other parks around Europe that have. Critter Shed is part of the Warren, the home of great Irish podcasts. As is my podcast, Not Without My Sister. You can find more great shows on thewarren.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.